Parker and Gardner. Okay, alcoholism. Page four, alcoholism. We're going into some psych and some med surge both with this one. I want to talk about the psychological aspects of alcoholism, called the psychodynamics. The number one problem in alcoholism psychologically is the same as the number one problem in any and all abusive situations. The number one problem in abuse is denial. Denial. Abusers have an infinite capacity to deny. In fact, an, a, an abuser has to deny in order to continue the behavior. Because what does denial allow that abuser to do? Keep doing, it. Keep doing it without having to answer for it. They just deny they have a problem with it. Now, I want you to understand, the title of this lecture is what? Alcoholism, but this first part is you can use the alcohol rules for any abuse. So what's the number one psychological problem in child abuse? What's the number one psychological problem in gambling? What's the number one psychological problem in cocaine abuse? What's the number one psychological problem in spouse abuse? Elder abuse. Denial is the number one problem in all abusive situations. Why is it number one? How can you treat someone that denies they have a problem? Right? So until they admit they have a problem, you've got a problem. Okay, definition. A, definition. What's the definition of denial? It is refusal. That goes in the first blank. Refusal to accept the reality of a problem. They refuse to accept the reality of it. They say, I'm not an alcoholic. I can quit any time I want. I'm not a spouse abuser. We just have a really physical relationship. <laughs> I'm not a child abuser. I'm just a really strict parent, and my kids aren't spoiled. You see what I'm saying? I'm not a gambler. I like games of chance. I'm not a food abuser. I'm, an I'm a gourmand. You know, they have all these denials about their problem. So how do you treat denial? Letter B. You treat denial by confronting it. You confront it. Confront. You confront it by pointing out to the person the difference between what they say and what they do. So how you confront someone is this. You say, okay, you say you're now not an alcoholic. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. You already drank a six-pack. You know what I'm saying? You just confront them. What did I point out? The difference between what she said, which was what? I'm not an alcoholic. And what she did, which was? Drink a six-pack before 10 o'clock in the morning. You say you're not a spouse abuser, but she has a restraining order against you. You see the confrontation? You say you're not a child abuser, but Protective Services has your children. You see, you're, you're not a, you say you're not a food abuser, but you're 400 pounds and you're 5'1". Do you see what I'm saying? It's my thyroid. 
Okay, it's your thyroid. Um, but, but the point is, is that they will deny what they have, and you confront it by pointing out the difference between what they and what they do. That's confrontation. Now, don't don't get thinking that confrontation is the same as aggression. Don't get those two things mixed up because aggression attacks the person. And aggression says, you are too an alcoholic, you jerk, you have to, you have to admit it. Do you see, what did I attack? What did I attack? Her, you, jerk, admit it. When, did I, when I confronted, did I attack her? No. You what? Say you're not an alcoholic. That's sorry. Okay, you say you're not an alcoholic. Did I attack you? No. Well, I just said, you say you're not an alcoholic, but it's six pack gone by ten. I mean, did you, you know, you're just saying, you're just saying, hey, Mm -hmm. you're not saying right, wrong, good, bad, horrible, wonderful. You're just saying, hey, this is what it is. This is what I see. You confront. So don't get confrontation mixed up with aggression. Aggression attacks the person. Confrontation attacks the problem. On boards, never attack a person. Just another little note. They have these questions where you're, deal, you're interacting with staff, and they'll say something like, you're dealing with a staff nurse that is, has more seniority than you on your first job, and they just find fault with everything you do. You understand the scenario? Well, how do you handle that? What do you say? Does anybody know what you say? What's bad to say? And think about pronouns. What would bad? What pronouns would bad answers have, and what pronouns would good answers have in that scenario? You versus I. So explain that to me. What do you mean? What's the good? What's the bad? The good answer has what in? Oh, I. I. Bad answer has you. So what don't you say there? Why don't you like me? Why are you so mean? The right answer is. I seem to be having a pro- I seem to be frustrating. I seem to be having a problem, or we have or seeming to not get along well. You see what I'm saying? Always, when you're dealing with psychodynamic problems with staff, say to your, use the I. I'm, 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 not you, you, you. Do you understand that? That's a real big thing they are testing a lot now. Okay, um, same thing with physicians. Physicians, when you question them on the phone, don't say, you wrote the order incorrectly. You say, I'm having a difficult time interpreting exactly what you want. Do you see the difference? Okay. So, when, you, when they are in denial, what do you do? Confront. Deny, confront. Deny, I want you to link that in your mind. Deny, they deny, you confront. They deny, you confront. However, be careful because there's another place where denial is operative, and that is loss and grief. Don't people go through denial in loss and grief? Have you heard of those stages of death and dying, loss and grief? What are they? Dabda. Dabda. D-A-B-D-A. Denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance, depre- I mean depression, acceptance. Denial, anger, bargaining. There's your dab. And depression, acceptance. There's your dot. Dab, dot. So, denial is an accepted, healthy, normal first reaction to grief and loss. 
So what do you do for the denial of loss and grief? Do you confront it? What do you do? Support it. The word is support. You want to support it. So my point is this. When you get a patient in denial, what do you have to pay attention to to get the question correct? Is it loss or abuse? Is it loss or abuse? With abuse, you what? Confront. With loss, you support. I live in Cedarville, a college of 3,000 in a town of 3,000. So there's one student for every person in the town. Um, But we were basically a farming community with a a college, and we have a lot of one-handed men in our town. Why? Baylor accidents. The Baylors amputate their hand. So we have a lot of farm machinery, one-handed Baylor accident guys. Can you imagine a a farmer comes in, his hand gets amputated, and it's all wrapped in a bandage. The next morning, you're taking care of him, and he says, I can't wait to go home and play piano. Problem. He only has one hand, right? So he's in what? What is he refusing to accept? The reality. Is that denial, refusing to accept the reality? Yes. So he's in denial. What would you never say to him? You say you're going to play piano, but you only have one hand. That's called what? Confrontation. Now, is confrontation okay for denial? Yes, as long as it's abuse, but not if it's loss. And this guy is lost. So what do you do? You say, oh, well, how long have you played piano? What's your favorite kind of music? Did you take lessons? What are you allowing? That denial to continue. You're supporting it because it serves a function. Is everybody getting the difference? But if you got an alcoholic, an alcoholic says, Oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I can quit any time I want. He's in what? What's the strategy? Confront. What would be really horrible to do? Support. You would say, Oh, how long have you been drinking? What's your favorite beverage? Did you take like it? You know? Did you ever go to have that, you know, hurricane over there at, you know, MacGyver's Bar? You know, you don't, you don't support it. So you see where you got two totally different answers for denial. Just pay attention to that. Okay, let's talk about the number two psychological problem that abusers have. And that is dependency, codependency. Dependency is when the abuser gets the significant other to do things for them or make decisions for them. In other words, the abuser says, oh, would you call my boss? Would you go do this? Would you do that? And they do it. So who is dependent? The significant other or the abuser? The abuser is dependent. Now, codependency, on the other hand, is when the significant other derives positive self-esteem from making decisions for or doing things for whom? The abuser. So the abuser says, call my boss, tell him I'm sick. That's an example of what? Dependency. The significant other calls the boss, says he's sick, he can't come to work. Hangs up, says, oh, aren't I a wonderful spouse because I did that because I don't know anybody else who would do it for that jerk. What are they? How do you know they're codependent? 
Did they get positive self-esteem? Yeah, what did they say? Aren't I a wonderful spouse because I did that? See, they have this rather pathologic yet symbiotic relationship. You know, one is dependent, the other gets positive self-esteem for meeting those dependency needs and they just feed off the other. What does the abuser get out of the relationship? What does the abuser get out of the relationship? What's that? Just keep doing Yeah, a life without responsibilities. He gets to keep doing whatever he wants, abusing. What does a significant other get out of it? They feel good. They feel Positive good. self-esteem out of it. And then we sit there and we say what to the significant other? Leave him. What are you doing in that relationship? Get out of it. Right? But they can't get out of it because they're what's tied up in that whole thing? Their self-esteem. So... You know, I mean, it's really kind of tough to treat. Well, then how do you treat it? How do you treat it? Well, number one, you set limits and enforce it. You set limits and enforce them. That goes fill in the blank. Set limits and enforce them. In other words, you start teaching the significant other to say the two-letter word, no. And then they have to keep doing it. Will you call my boss? No. No. Would you go buy me some? No. Would you drop me off at the track? No. Would you get me a ham sandwich out of the refrigerator? Well, see, that would be okay. You know, I'm not saying say no to everything. I'm saying say no to those things where you're, where you're feeding into everything. All right? But that's not good enough. That alone will not work. Because you must work on the self-esteem of the codependent person or it will never work. Because as soon as the codependent starts saying no, what will the, uh, what will the dependent abuser start saying? You don't, you don't love me anymore. You're a mean, nasty old whatever. Because you are just horrible. You're horrible. And what is, what is that, what's that person playing right at? Self-esteem. They know where the what side the bread's buttered on. And they, they go right at that person's self-esteem and within 10 minutes they got them emotionally manipulated right back into the whole system. So in order for this to work, what does the codependent person have to say? No. I'm saying no and I'm a good, sticking to it because I'm a good person because I'm saying no. no. Oh, you're nasty. I don't care what you say. I'm a good person. And that's, that's how you have to work on it. The thing is, I worked at Lafayette Clinic in Detroit, Michigan for a couple of years. And it's mostly alcohol rehab and seizure. And we found that when we treated codependency dependency successfully, when we treated this problem, guess what we lost? The relationship. You know, the codependent person would go... I'm a good person. I don't need you. And why am I here? And they'd leave. So, you know, we'd solve the problem but lose the relationship. Real common. Okay, turn the page. Let's talk about manipulation. What's the definition of manipulation? It's when the abuser gets a significant other to do things for him or her that are not in the best interest of the significant other. The nature of the act is dangerous or harmful. What goes in the blanks is interest and harmful. Interest and harmful. 
So how is this like dependency? How is manipulation like dependency? Yeah, the, in both situations, the abuser is getting the other person to do something for them. Then how in the world do you tell the difference between those two things? What's that? Well, neutral versus negative. Look at what they're being asked to do. If what the significant other is being asked to do is neutral, no big deal, no harm done, no harm, no foul, it's simply dependency, codependency. If what the significant other is being asked to do is inherently harmful or dangerous to the significant other, that person is being manipulated. So let me give you two examples, and you tell me which one is denial, which I mean, which one is dependency, and which one is manipulation. A 49-year-old alcoholic gets her 17-year-old daughter to go to the store and buy alcohol for her. That is what. Why? Well, no, because well, because a 17-year-old going and buying alcohol is illegal. illegal in the state of Ohio. So it is illegal. So he, she's being asked to do something illegal. Now, what about this? A 49-year-old alcoholic asks her 50-year-old husband to go to the store and buy alcohol for her. Of what is that an example? Why is it dependent? It's the same thing, buying alcohol. She's holding on. She knows he has a problem. I mean, well, and she's of age. There's no, how, how harmful is it for a 50-year-old man to go to a store and buy alcohol? Any harm? No. So that's simply dependency. But when the 17-year-old goes to buy alcohol, that's illegal. There's harm. That's manipulation. Let me give you an example. Uh, Tuesday evening or last Friday evening. Remember Tuesday, last Friday, around here? Okay. Um, your neighbor calls you, no, your, 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 your brother calls you, sister-in-law calls you and said, <laughs> would you pick up little Billy from basketball practice at school so he can spend the night at your house because of the snow? Now, you have a... What's the, what, what would you, what's a four-wheel drive what? Jeep. Hummer, Jeep. What, what's best in the snow? Not ice, the snow. What? Four-wheel drive, some big... Okay, you got a big earth mover, four-wheel drive, <laughs> earth mover, okay? And you live three blocks from the school. And you say, okay, sister-in-law, I'll do that. You are being what? She is being dependent on you. You're being codependent because you'll say, oh, aren't I a wonderful brother-in-law for doing this, right? What if your sister-in-law calls you? She's got the four-wheel drive all-terrain vehicle. And she lives three blocks from school. She asks you to pick up her son and take him to your house. You have a, uh, a Kia uh, Sophia with ball tires and it starts every other time it leaks oil 
got no heat. Do you see what I'm saying? And you live 20 miles from the school. And you, what's happening here? You're being what? Manipulate. Because it is inherently dangerous for you to get in that car and go that distance when she could do it easily, safer, better herself. Whereas in the first one, it was safer and better for you to do it than... Do you see what I'm saying? Dependency and manipulation are similar. It's just the only way you tell the difference is, is one, you're being asked to do something which is bad for you. That's manipulation versus something that's neutral. That's dependency, codependency. Can you tell the difference now? Okay, good. All right. How do you treat manipulation? You set limits and enforce them. So you start saying, what two-letter word? No. No. Number two, it is easier to treat than dependency, codependency, because nobody likes being manipulated. I have never heard a person say, oh, I must be a wonderful person for being manipulated. Do you know what they all say? I must be an idiot for falling for that. Do you hear any positive self-esteem going on? No. So there's no positive self-esteem issue going on with manipulation like there is with dependency, codependency. You see why it's easier to treat? Okay, let's just summarize. How many patients do you have with denial? If you have a, if Bob is in denial, how many patients do you have? One, two, or three, or four. Bob is in denial, how many patients do you have? One, two, or three, or four? One. Bob is dependent. How many patients do you have? One or two? Two, because you got to get the codependent. Bob is a manipulator. How many patients do you have? One or two? One. Do you see what I'm saying? Because you don't have to do anything with the person who's being manipulated because there's no self-esteem issues. So with denial, you've got one patient. With dependency, you have two patients. With manipulation, you have one patient. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, let's talk now about things specific to alcoholism. Let's talk about Wernicke's or Korsakoff's. Wernicke's and Korsakoff's. Typically, they are separate, but boards often lumps them together. Wernicke's is an encephalopathy and Korsakoff's is a psychosis, but they tend to go together. You, you find them in the same patient. So Wernicke Korsakoff's is number one, psychosis induced by vitamin B1 or thiamine deficiency. This is a scenario where you lose touch with reality. You go insane because you don't have B1. What's induced? Psychosis. Psychosis, which means insanity or loss of touch with reality. These are psychotic people, not just a little bit emotionally disturbed. These are psychotics. The primary symptom, number two, is amnesia with confabulation. Amnesia with confabulation. Amnesia means memory loss. Confabulation means making up stories. Why do they make up stories? Because they forgot. Well, in that case, then I'm psychotic. Because I often make up details that I have forgotten. Right? So then why are they psychotic and me not? Fair question. Why? 
So everybody that forgets something and makes up a story to fill in what they forgot is insane <coughs> psychotic. True or false? False. Well then, explain to me the difference. Why? Why, is these, why are these poor people called in psychotic and we're not? Because they believe it. See, when I fill in details because I forgot, I know it's not really true. But they really believe it. The lie is just as real as reality. And their memory loss is not, oh, I forgot what I did last night when I was drunk. <laughs> no, it is, what happened to the 90s? They don't remember anything in the whole 1990s. They'll lose entire decades of their memory. So what will they do? Make up stories as to what they were doing during the 90s. I had a guy that, with Mordecai's, oh, he was Ronald Reagan's national security advisor during the 80s. The guy had never made it past third grade. Now, whatever you thought of Reagan, he wasn't that bad that he would have had a third grader running the national security. You know what I'm saying? So he definitely was never Reagan's national security advisor. He thought he was. He could tell you meetings, dates, times, people. He had, he had this whole psychotic reality built around Ronald Reagan's terms in office. And he believed it. He literally believed it. He believed it as, as that was as real as anything that was happening right then and right there. So, how do you deal with that? How do you think you deal with that? You've got a Wernicke's Korsakoff guy who thinks he is Obama's Secretary of Defense. And so he's got to get up and go to a cabinet meeting right now. How do you deal with that? What would probably be a bad way to deal with that? What's that? Okay, we don't usually agree or disagree. We don't confront. Why? Because they'll get angry. Why? Because you're telling them that what they're saying isn't true and they believe it. Right. And, and it's due to brain damage. So are they ever going to learn what's true and what's real? No. So is this permanent or not? Typically permanent. So you don't present reality because they can't learn it. So what do you do? See, this is the questions they ask you. They give you a person with Wernicke's and they say that Wernicke says he's going to a presidential cabinet meeting at 8 o'clock this morning. How do you deal with that? Okay, distract is not as good a word as redirect. Redirect is a really good word. And that means to take what he's all about that you can't do and rechannel it into something he can do. So can he go to Barack Obama's cabinet meeting this morning? No. So what you do is you say something like this. Well, why don't we go, why don't you then get a shower. When you're done, we'll go watch CNN to see what the news of the day is in Washington, D.C. You see that? Is he going to do that? Probably, because he, you see what I'm saying? And you don't get into a fight with him about, no, you're Joe the Milkman, you're not Ronald Reagan's national security advisor. Do you see what I'm saying? Because that's fruitless and pointless. So when somebody has Wernicke's and Korsakoff's and they talk crazy, what do you do? Redirect. You don't present what? Reality. Because presenting reality is for those people that you think that can learn it and these people can't learn it. 
So redirecting them is the way. Now let's talk about characteristics. Number one, it is preventable. You never have to get this in the first place. How can you prevent getting this in the first place? Take vitamin B1. Uh, but by the way, vitamin B1 is a coenzyme necessary for the metabolism of alcohol. You don't have to know this. It's necessary for the metabolism of alcohol. So if you don't have B1, you won't metabolize alcohol. It won't go into Krebs cycle. Does that sound familiar? It won't get burned up for energy. So what will it do? Accumulate. And where will it go? Brain. And it will destroy brain cells. That's how this happens. So all they need to protect the brain is to take vitamin B1 and then any alcohol they drink will be what? Metabolized. So they don't have to stop drinking. All they have to do is take their one a day with their vodka in the morning and they'll be fine. <laughs> they will be perfectly fine. And you get a lot of good compliance with this. Okay. B, it is arrestable, which means you can stop it from getting worse. How can you stop it from getting worse? Take B1. Stop drinking? Is stop drinking necessary? No. C, it is irreversible. Now, not everybody has irreversible, but it's about 70% irreversible, so you always say irreversible. you understand on boards you always answer with the majority if something is majority of the time fatal you say it's what fatal you don't say well you know five percent of the time it's not fatal so I'm saying it's not fatal no don't do that go with the majority so it is irreversible so it's a preventable it's arrestable and it's irreversible two good news one bad news all right, let's turn the page and talk about some drugs that have to do with alcohol. Antabuse or Revia. Antabuse or Revia. Does anybody know the generic name for this, these drugs? Disulfiram. Disulfiram. <clears throat> Number one, it is aversion therapy. Aversion therapy. It's a form of aversion therapy. Now what aversion therapy is, is this. The word aversion means a really strong hatred for something. A gut hatred for something. What we want alcoholics to develop is a gut hatred for alcohol. That's what we're trying to do here. Well, how do we do it? Well, we give them this drug. Now, just you don't have to write this down, but just sort of listen to this for a second. When you take this drug, and it gets to a blood level in your blood, if you drink alcohol, it will interact with that chemical in your blood and make you super sick to your stomach. Not like, I mean, really super sick. Horribly ill. Let me ask you, have you guys ever been to a restaurant and gotten sick afterward from eating at that restaurant? Anybody? Will you eat at that restaurant anymore? Now, if you go, you probably won't order... You may order something else, but you're not going to order what made you sick because you have developed a what? A what? Aversion to that restaurant. Okay? Because if I gave you a $20 bill right now and said, go eat at that restaurant and buy that meal, would you do it? No. Would you take my $20?
yeah. You go somewhere else and buy something else. But you, you wouldn't go there. So I couldn't even pay you to eat there, could I? Well, we want the alcoholic to have that same reaction to alcohol. In other words, we couldn't even pay him to what? Drink. So if you couldn't even pay an alcoholic to drink, I think that's pretty much a cure. Now, the only problem with this drug is it works in theory better than it works in reality. Or else we'd have had a cure for alcoholism years ago. So it really doesn't work as well as they say it does. But you still need to know how it's supposed to work and whatnot. So the thing the boards wants to know is how long does it take to get into their system and how long does it take to get out of their system? In other words, what's the onset and duration of its effectiveness? And that answer is two weeks. Two weeks. So how long do they have to be on the drug <coughs> before it starts to work? And how long do they have to be off the drug before they can safely drink again? Two weeks. So usually the way it happens is doctor prescribes antabuse. You come, you sort of have to live sort of like a transition, like a recovery place, a transition home, where for two weeks you are made. They make sure you take the pills, and then you're let out into the community, and it will work. And every time you drink, you'll get deathly ill. So, but if you decide you want to drink at a high school reunion, when do you have to stop taking your interviews? Two weeks, Two weeks before. before the reunion, or you're not going to be able to do it. All right, now, number three, patient teaching. Teach these patients to avoid all forms of alcohol, to avoid nausea, vomiting, and possibly death. Now, death isn't what we're going for. That would cure the problem, but it's not what we're going for. Now, do you suppose you have to teach an alcoholic, hey, hey, let me talk. Let me tell you what has alcohol in it. Whiskey does, wine does, beer does, tequila. They, they know that. What you have to teach them that they have to avoid is stuff that they wouldn't think that they have to avoid that they do. And number one, mouthwash. They need to avoid mouthwash. Even if they swish and spit, they're still going to get sick. Number two, aftershaves. Even if they put it on topically, they're going to get nauseated. Now, they won't get violently ill from that, but it will make them nauseated. Perfumes and colognes should not be used. Same reason. Insect repellents, like mosquito sprays, off deep woods cutter, those are all bad. They'll make you sick. Any over-the-counter that ends in the word elixir, E-L-I-X-I-R, because what do all elixirs have in them? Alcohol. Alcohol. Dimetap elixir, Robitussin elixir, Dayquil elixir, Nyquil elixir, Tylenol PM elixir, Benadryl elixir. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers. In Greene County, about six months ago, we had our first case of alcohol hand sanitizer poisoning. 
this alcoholic got into Bob Evans and drank every single um, bottle of hand sanitizer he could get his hands on to keep the shakes away. Because he knew it had alcohol in it. In fact, I've heard that they've taken it out of the prison systems because guys are learning how to distill it and sell it. Um, another thing they're not allowed to have is uncooked icings. Remember those uncooked, those no-bake icings that you make? Because what do no-bake icings have in it? Vanilla extract, which is powerful. That's Granny's way of getting... <laughs> wow. All right, and remember this though. Here's the one that everybody gets suckered in on. Do not pick the red wine vinaigrette. They can have the red wine. Why, why are they trying to sucker you in on there? Wine. Do you see what I'm saying? And you go, oh, wine, they can't have, they can have red wine vinaigrette. They just can't have the cupcake with the unbaked icing on it. <laughs> okay. Okay, is that all the blanks filled in there, guys? Okay. Now let's talk about overdoses and withdrawals. Bad news. You've got to know all your drugs, all the overdoses, and all the withdrawals. Good news, you only have to answer two questions to get them all correct. It's an easy way of knowing them. So here we go. Every abused drug, did I say every drug? Every abused drug is either an upper or a downer. Would you agree with that? Yes. Why are drugs that are not uppers nor downers, why are they not abused? They don't do anything. <laughs> Right? Although there is, what is, there is an exception. What is the number one most abused class of drug that's not an upper or a down? Laxatives in the elderly. The elderly abuse laxatives. But that isn't upper or down. That's inner or outer, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but every abused drug is an upper or a down. Correct? Okay. Have you ever had anybody come up to you on the street and say, hey, want to buy some Nexium? They're <laughs> <laughs> not selling that on the Because it's not an upper or a down. down. So, letter A. You see in the box, letter A? Mm -hmm. When you get an overdose or withdrawal question, what's the very first question out of your mouth? Is the drug an upper or a downer. That's the very first thing you must establish. That is the first step you take in getting the question correct. Now, let's talk about uppers versus downers. The names of the uppers are caffeine, cocaine, PCP slash LSD. What are those? PCPLC, what are those called? Psychedelic hallucinogens. Sounds like up to me. And then another class are the methamphetamines. M-E-T-H amphetamines. Methamphetamines. Crystal meth, all that stuff that you buy at the grocery. You know, you buy the Sudafed, all the cough, the decongestants, and you cook it down. That's the upper meth. New that you're going to have to know is 
Adderall, which is the ADD drug, the attention deficit drug. And a lot of kids with ADD are selling their Adderall to their friends at school rather than taking it. ADD is the first three letters of Adderall. But that's another upper, and that's going to be tested probably starting April 1. It's going to be a new one. Now, that's only five drugs. Caffeine, cocaine, PCP, LSD, methamphetamines, and Adderall. Those are uppers. Well, what do you think the signs and symptoms are when you're on an upper? Things go up because you're on an... Upper. upper. Figure that out. You know, <laughs> uppers make you go up. You know, that's pretty hard to remember. So what are they going to have? Give me some signs and symptoms. Principles. Euphoria. Euphoria. Tachycardia. Restlessness. Irritability. Bowels. What are you going to what, what's the bowel stats going to be? Borborygmy, diarrhea. What are the reflexes going to be? What numbers? Three and four. Flaccid or spastic? Spastic. Are they going to respiratorily arrest or seize? Should you have a suction machine or an ambu bag? Are you getting this idea? Uppers make things go up because they are uppers. Alright? Downers. What are the names of the downers? Am I going to memorize anything? No. Why? Everything that's not an upper is a... Because every abused drug is either an upper or a... No. There's no such thing as a tweener, so you can't you can't get that. Now, if they want a tweener effect, what do they take? Well, an upper and a downer together, but there's no one drug that gives you a tween effect. Now, there are how many uppers? Five. You know how many downers there are? 135. You know, the lauded MS Contin, morphine sulfate, codeine, Demerol, Fentanyl, Wabane, Nubane, Thorazine, Stelazine, Fluvenazine, Piperazine, Clopromazine, Prolixin, Ativan, Xanax, uh, Valium, Librium, um, Phenobarbital, Pentobarbital, Secobarbital, um, Heroin, Hashish, Marijuana, Alcohol. Do you know what I mean? It's all what? Downers. Downers because it's not an upper. So only memorize. I hate lists, right? But if we can memorize a short one and know everything else is a, that seems like some payoff for me. So what do downers make you do? Go what direction? Because they are downers. So what are you going to see there? Lethargic. Everything that we said, just flip it. And what's going to be the big danger? Respiratory depression. Respiratory depression. Arrest. Depression and leading to arrest.
What do you think about this? Your patient is high on heroin. No, high on cocaine. What's critically important to assess? And one of the answers is B, which says making sure that the respiratory rate is above 12. What do you think? He's high on cocaine. Is a critical measurement making sure that the respiratory rate is above 12? No. No, why? There's no way he's going to even be close to 12. You got the wrong patient, but they're trying to sucker you into thinking, oh, respiratory rate. No, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, respiratory rate's important, but not in this patient because this patient wouldn't have a respiratory arrest because they're high on and upper, which makes everything go up. You'd rather check their reflexes. Do you see what I'm saying? And we go, oh, ABCs. Did you hear that? Airway, oh, respiratory rate less than 12. Wait, ABCs is not a great rule, guys. If, you're, if you've been living by ABCs, you've been shortchanged for a very long time. It's a very poor rule. I will show you better rules than ABCs. ABCs is a vast oversimplification. Have you ever, how many have used ABCs to, to get answers? How many have used ABCs? How many have gotten about as many right using it as you get wrong using it? How many you get quite a bit wrong using it? How many get it all right when you use it? Are you understand? How many are you understand, How many would say ABCs doesn't really work that well for me? It doesn't. It should because it doesn't. Okay. Um, it's a vast oversimplification, but we'll get to that later. All right. B. You see where we're at, B? After you know whether the drug is an upper or a downer, the second thing you ask yourself is, are they talking about overdose or withdrawal? Because they're opposites, and you've got to know which one you're talking about. You have to pay attention. Is the question talking about overdose, which is too much, or withdrawal, which is not enough? If you don't pay attention to that, you will miss the question. So what's the first thing you have to pay attention to in a drug overdose question? Is the drug or an upper or downer? What's the second thing you have to pay attention to? Overdose or withdrawal. Once you do those, you've got your answer. Your answer is so simple, it's pathetic. Let's look how it works. Under letter B, you see where it says overdose or intoxication? You see that? You have what? Too much. Now, put it together. Put the answers to the two questions you asked together, and you get your answer for the question. In other words... If they say overdosed on an upper, you have too much what? Upper, and everything goes up. So you're going to pick those up things because you have too much upper. But what if they say downer and intoxication? In that case, you have too much downer, which makes everything go down, and it's going to go the opposite of what the other one did. Do you see, see the point here? However, what if they talk about withdrawal? In withdrawal, you don't have enough. You have too little. Well, let's put it together. If you have withdrawal, downer, you don't have enough downer. If you don't have enough downer, everything goes... No, no, okay, I'm doing it backwards. Yeah, on your page it says you don't have enough upper, right? Too little. So too little upper makes everything go down and then too little downer or not enough downer makes everything go 
Does everybody see the logic in that? So, upper overdose, upper overdose looks like what other situation? Upper overdose looks like what other? Downer withdrawal. And downer overdose looks like? Upper withdrawal. So, in what two situations would respiratory depression and arrest be your highest priority? In which two situations would respiratory arrest and depression be your highest priority? Downer, overdose, and upper withdrawal. Exactly. Which two would seizure be your biggest risk? Upper overdose and downer withdrawal. Do you see see what I'm talking about? So what's the first question you ask yourself? Upper down. Second question. Overdose or withdrawal. Too much or not enough. Put it together. Just pick the obvious answer. Let me show you how I want you to work this. Squad calls you and says they're bringing in a patient. They're 10 minutes out. He's an overdose on cocaine. What would you expect to see? Select all that apply. your first question? Up or down? And the answer is? Upper. Second question. Overdose withdrawal. In this case, you have what? Which is? Putting two and two together. Too much upper. Right? So, answer your question. Central nervous system drug, not an autonomic. Talk to your buddy. See what they say. Okay, how many did you select? Four? You should have selected four. 
Okay? So, first test. Cocaine is in. Upper, upper overdose means too much. You got too much upper, everything's going to go what direction? So draw your arrow up, then go hunt. What about irritability? Yes. Most four reflexes. Yes. Respiration less than 12. No. Difficult to arouse. No. Poor breathing. Yes. Increased temp. Yes. You're correct. Those four. You're caring for a client who's withdrawing from cocaine. What are you going to answer? No. The opposite. <laughs> Now you're going to pick respirations under 12 and difficult to arouse. They start doing that on you, you start moving. They need some Narcan. Okay. Are you seeing the, are you seeing the idea? So do you have to memorize all these drugs? No. Turn the page. Let's talk about drug abuse in the newborn or drug addiction in the newborn. This is a real hot topic because we have a lot of babies born nowadays to addicted moms. Always assume, here's the blanks, always assume intoxication, not withdrawal at birth. Always assume intoxication, not withdrawal at birth. So if they say you have a baby at birth or in the first 24 hours, what would you assume the baby is in? Intoxicated. After 24 hours after birth, you'd assume he's in what? Withdrawal. So how old does the baby have to be before you go withdrawal? 24 hours. Now how do you work this? Well, what about this question? You're caring for an infant born to a way lewd that dates me. Addicted mom. Nobody uses lewds anymore. A way lewd addicted mom. 24 hours after birth. Select all that apply. Okay, so you got a way lewd addicted mom. You're caring for this infant 24 hours after the baby's been born. Select all that apply. Difficult to console. Low core body temp. Exaggerated startle reflex respiratory depression and seizure risk. Talk to you, buddy. So let's be down the right. Why'd you say so? Why'd you say so? So, 
and you're in withdrawal. Things that go down. That last one says shrill, high pitched cry. How many did you select? Two. Should have selected three. Okay, so quaaludes, what are they? Downers. How do you know they're downers? It's not on the upper list. It's not caffeine, not cocaine, not PCPLSD or Adderall or methamphetamines. You don't know what it, how many didn't know what it was? What should you have said? Downer. When you don't know what it is, pick downer. You got a hundred to one chance of being right. I mean, a one, a hundred, well, 99 to hundred chance of being right. So you would say this is a downer. And the baby is what? Withdrawal. Withdrawing. This has been 24 hours, so he's starting into withdrawal. So he doesn't have enough downer, so everything's going to go up. So, difficult to consult. Yes, oh, hey, there is four. I, I'm sorry, there's one. Okay, low, low core body temp. No. Exaggerated startle. Yes. Respiratory depression. No. Seizure risk. Yes. Shrill high pitched cry. Yes, yes, I'm sorry, I, I I didn't. I wasn't thinking. Now how many of you are really good at quaalude newborn situations? How many thought you were? Do you see what I'm saying? It's not that hard. It, in fact, boards doesn't really expect you to know this. They just want to see if you know some what? Principles that central nervous system depresses twenty four after hours after birth make the baby go the opposite way. Does that make sense? And and they'll pick these things and you're going, oh, I don't know quaaludes. Oh, I don't know quaaludes. Oh, I don't know what quaaludes. Shut up and answer the question. <laughs> if you don't know quaaludes, you should know the answer. It's a downer. And then go with it. That's what the good test takers are doing. They're going, they're putting their money on the on the best bets. That ain't the cults. Okay, um, alcohol withdrawal syndrome versus delirium tremens. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome versus delirium tremens. You have to know the differences between them. They're not the same. Sometimes people think DTs, delirium tremens, is alcohol withdrawal syndrome. No, they're totally different things. When board says alcohol withdrawal, they mean you're withdrawing from alcohol. When they say delirium tremens, you're in delirium tremens. They are very different. Do not think they're the same. Letter A. Every alcoholic goes through alcohol withdrawal. They all do 24 hours after they stop drinking. So when an alcoholic stops drinking alcohol, within 24 hours they will all go into withdrawal syndrome. Every single one of them. However, only a minority get delirium tremens. It, you don't have to know the percentage. It's, it's under 20%. By the way, when do you go into delirium tremens after you stop drinking? Do you know what time frame? 
72 hours. So what always comes first? Alcohol withdrawal within 24, then a couple of days after that you go into DTs. Here's a statement. You do not have to write this down, but if you understand this statement, then you're, you're good to go. You understand what I said. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome always precedes delirium tremens. However, delirium tremens does not always follow alcohol withdrawal syndrome. You got that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have DTs, if you have DTs, you had what? But just because you have alcohol withdrawal doesn't mean you're going to get DTs. What was the second part of that? Um, Precedes delirium tremens, but delirium tremens does not always follow alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Okay, next difference, letter B. AWS, AWS is the abbreviation that I'm using for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. AWS is not life-threatening. DTs can kill you. C. Patients with AWS are not a danger to self or others. Patients with DTs are dangerous to self and others. The word are goes in there. A-R-E. They are dangerous. So here are two really big differences. AWS, it won't hurt anybody. It won't hurt you. You're stable. You're fine. DTs, you're unstable. You could die. Second big difference. AWS, they're not going to hurt anybody. Yeah, they're loud and obnoxious. Because they're withdrawing from a downer, which makes everything go up. They're going to be loud and obnoxious, yeah, but they're not going to hurt anybody. But a DTers, you have to assume is dangerous because they can, they, they are dangerous. All right, now, those differences will translate into differences in care, which we will outline in the table below. Let's fill in this table about the differences between AWS and delirium tremens. First column, first row. Does everybody know what box I'm in? First column, first row, under AWS. Regular diet. Next box down, same column, first column, first column, second row. Semi-private anywhere, semi-private anywhere, which means they could be in a semi-private room anywhere on the unit. Same column, third row down. We're just going down that first column. Up ad lib, up ad lib, which means they can go around anywhere they want to go. And last box in that column, no restraints. You do not restrain these people because they are not a danger to self or others. Now let's compare and contrast that with the DT's client, delirium tremens. <clears throat> Second column, middle column, first box, first row. NPO clear liquids. NPO or clear liquids. Why? Why seizure? Why up? Yeah, because they were drawing from a downer. Everything's going to go up, and the big up is seizure. And with seizure, you get aspiration, so you want an NPO or clear liquids. 
Or is Yeah. Um, on boards, sometimes they'll say NPO, sometimes they'll say clear liquids. They won't have them against each other because that would be too tough to pick. But it'd be either one. Uh, the second box down, private near nurse's station. Private room near nurse's station. Why? They're dangerous and they're unstable. See, you can, could you put an alcohol withdrawal patient on a pediatric overflow unit? Sure. They'll be known as Uncle Wally, but, you know, he'll be everybody's <laughs> best friend, and the parents will say, but he won't hurt anybody. But in DTers, you got to watch these DTers. In fact, DTers probably should be in ICU. Why? Dangerous and unstable. But no self-respecting head nurse of ICU will allow them through the doors. Why? Because they're screaming and yelling like banshees. You know, and they don't want that destabilizing the rest of their population. So they usually get stuck on step-down units. But if you're going to, if you, as an LPN, well, as an LPN, would you accept the assignment of a DT's client? No, because they're unstable. As an RN, would you accept the assignment? Mm -hmm. Yes, but what would you have to do with the rest of your assignment if you accept DTers on med search? Decrease your workload. Somebody else may have to take seven while you take three. Okay. And remember, it's a perfect world on boards. Everybody will be fine with that. The other nurse will be fine with that. Yeah, I'll take nine, you take two. Yeah, it's fine. So what kind of reasoning is really a kiss of death on boards? What line of reasoning? What kind of thought process that you would do in question answers which would really be bad? Yeah. Saying, oh, I wouldn't do that because, what? I don't have enough staff. staff. I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources. No. On boards you have what? A perfect world. You have all the money, all the time, all the staff. Everybody's cooperative. Everybody's happy. Everybody wants to make it happen. They even don't mind their, their assignment being changed every hour. Okay. Okay, let's talk about the next thing down. They are on restricted bed rest, which means no bathroom privileges. If they have to use the facilities, we have bedpans and urinals for them. And lastly, they must be restrained. Why must they be restrained? Because they are dangerous. Now, with what would you restrain them? Certain types of restraints are futile and not used. Some are appropriate. What would be some that would be appropriate and some that would not? Do you know? What about soft wrists? Yes or no? Yes. No, they'll get out of that. That's that's not enough. That's not safe enough. What about four point softs? No, that's not. They can get out of that. They need to be in a vest or two point two point locked leathers. 
Now what does two point mean? Two extremities. Which two extremities? No, not two arms. An arm and a leg. Which arm, which leg? Opposite. You always lock down one arm and the opposite leg in two point. That's what it means. That's what you're supposed to do. Now you rotate that every two hours, so what do you do two hours later? You switch it. Now, what would you do first? Their right arms locked down, their left legs locked down. What would you do first? Lock the left arm, then the right leg, then release the... Yeah, don't release them first. <laughs> you'll only make that mistake one time. And then you'll go, oh, okay, I got it now. You'll remember now, what do they both get? Well, they both get an antihypertensive, a blood pressure pill. Why would they get an antihypertensive? Why? Why is everything going up? Perfect. You guys are so excellent. 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 You got it. You're getting it. Okay. They're both on a tranquilizer. Why do they both get a tranquilizer? Because they're up. And why are they up? So we're drawing from a downer. And they both get a multivitamin containing B1. Why? Wernicke's and Corsicoff's to prevent that. I always say, no B1, you B1. <laughs> One of those crazies. No B1, you'll be one. And then that last box I shaded. And I shaded that so that you obsessive compulsives two weeks from now when you go over this lecture, there was nothing you missed. You don't need to call everybody in the class and find out what was in that last box, what was in the last box. Nothing goes in that last box. Okay. Alright, let's talk about some drugs. And then we'll take another break. Drugs. Aminoglycosides. This is a powerful, powerful class of antibiotics. As far as antibiotics go, they're the big guns. You know what I'm talking about? When nothing else works, pull out your aminoglycoside. You know? It's like the aminoglycosides are to infections like that scene in Indiana Jones when the big uh, uh, Arab guy comes out with a scimitar, you know, and he starts like this, and Jones pulls out a gun and shoots him. Well, it's, they're like the gun. You know, they're going to blow it away. They're, but you don't use it unless what? Nothing else works. Nothing else works. You, 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 these are dangerous. Now, Boards loves to test these. Why does Boards love to test these drugs? Because they're dangerous, and this is a test of safety. And do you know these drugs? They're in the top, in my, from my experience, these show up probably in the top five most commonly tested groups of drugs on boards. You don't have to know this because I'll repeat it several times, but probably the most common group of drugs you have to know for boards are your psych drugs, and we'll get that on Sunday. The second most common are the insulins, which we'll talk about tomorrow. The third most common are the anticoagulants, which we'll talk about tomorrow. 
The fourth is digitalis, which we'll talk about today. The fifth are the aminoglycosides. Then you've got to know your steroids, your calcium channel blockers, your beta blockers, your pain meds, and your uh, OB drugs. Those are the big ten. And we hit all of them. Okay? So um, these are real, real important to know. Now, here's the deal. For aminoglycosides, think the following. A mean old mycin. When you see the word aminoglycoside, from now on, I do not want you to think aminoglycoside. I want you to think amine old mycin. Do you hear the similar sound? Amino, amine old. Amino, amine old. So when you see aminoglycoside, think what? Amine old mycin. Okay, now. What does that tell you? Well, here's what that tells you. The letter B. They are antibiotics used to treat what? Well, if they are mean, old drugs, what kinds of infections would they treat? Serious or non-serious? Life-threatening or non-life-threatening? Resistant or susceptible? Gram-positive or gram-negative? Gram-negative. So you got the resistant, serious, life-threatening, gram-negative infections are treated by what? A mean old mycin. So you treat a mean old infection with the mean old mycin. Do you hear what I'm saying? So would you use these drugs to treat sinusitis? No. Why? It's not a mean old infection, so don't use a mean old glycoside. What about tuberculosis? Ooh, that's a mean old infection. I use a mean old mycin. What about septic peritonitis? Is that a mean old infection? Mm-hmm. Yep, so I use a what? A mean old mycin. What about otitis media? No. no. Middle ear infection. Is that a mean old infection? No. No. Do I use a mean old mycin? No. What about bladder infection? No. What about fulminating pyelonephritis? Yeah. yeah. Septic shock. Yeah. Infection of third degree burn wounds over 80% of your body. Yeah. Got it? What about viral pharyngitis? No. Streptic, strep throat? No. No. So use a mean old mycin when you got a mean old infection. And never any other time. So, mean old tells you what it treats. Mean old infections. The mycin tells you what they end in. Good news. All aminoglycosides end in mycin. They all do. That's letter C. All aminoglycosides end in mycin. But you know what the bad news is? Not all drugs that end in mycin are aminoglycosides. Rats. Wish that would work, but it doesn't. But don't despair, because most drugs that end in mycin are mean old mycins. There are three of the mycins which are not these drugs. And the three mycins which are not mean old mycins, not mean old mycins, are erythromycin, zithromycin, and clarithromycin. 
throw mycin. What do all the mycins that are not mean old mycins have in them? Throw. So I say, if it ends in mycin, it's a what? Mean old mycin. But if it has throw, throw it off the list. Do you hear what I said? If it ends in what? Mycin. It is a mean old mycin. But if it has throw in it, throw it off the list. It is no longer a what? Mean old mycin. So would you use clarithromycin, zithromycin, and erythromycin for sinusitis? Yes. Would you use it for tuberculosis? No. No. Would you use streptomycin for otitis media sinusitis? No. Would you use it for tuberculosis? Yes. So the mycins are mean old mycins, except the thromycins, which are little old, harmless, no big deals. So watch out for your thromycins. They're a little tricky. So if you see thromycin, do what with it? Throw it off what list? The, the, the mean, mean old list, so it's just a little old. Some examples clindamycin, cleomycin, bleomycin, dactinomycin, adriamycin, streptomycin, canamycin, bleomycin, you know, all these mycins. Now, what are the toxic effects? Letter E. This is what they really key in on. What are the two toxic effects? Now, what do all these drugs end in? Mycin. What English word sounds like mycin? Mice. Mice. So when you think, when you see mycin, I want you to think mice. What is the most famous feature of the world's most famous mouse? Ears. So that's to tell you these drugs are what? When you see mice, and I want you to think of mice. When you think of mice, I want you to think of ears. And when you think of ears, I want you to recall, oh, they are ototoxic. Because oto means what? Ear. ear. Oto means ear. What's ophthalmo mean? Ophthalmo. Ear. Eyes. Oto means? Rhino means? Nose. Oro means? Mouth. Very good. So what do you monitor? If it's toxic to your ears, what do you monitor? Hearing. Ringing in the ears. What's that called? Tinnitus. Yeah. Um, if you're saying tonight, if you're saying tinnitus, that's wrong. It's tinnitus or tinnitus. That last letter is a U, not an I. You see what I'm saying? It's T-I-N-N-I-T-U-S. Tinnitus or tinnitus, not tinnitus. Everybody says tinnitus and it's wrong. I even hear it on commercials on TV. Okay, um, and vertigo or dizziness. Why vertigo or dizziness? Equilibrium. Because the ear also has equilibrium, doesn't it? Balance. So what are the three things you worry about with the ear? Hearing, ringing, and dizziness. But if you had to pick between those three, which one would you pick? Hearing. Hearing would beat the other two. Okay, number two. Number two. The human ear, now that we're thinking ears, why are we thinking ears? 
Because of mice, right? Because of mice. Well, here's the human ear. You see the human ear? If we connect the dots, what's it shaped like? Kidney. The kidney. So just remember, the human ear is shaped like the kidney. So the second toxic effect of these drugs is nephrotoxicity. Nephro, N-E-P-H for kidney. Nephrotoxicity. So what do we monitor? Urine. Not urine. They'll have that there, but don't go for it. Creatinine. Don't go for BUN. Don't go for daily weight. Don't go for output. Go for creatinine. The creatinine is the best indicator of kidney function. The creatinine is the best indicator of kidney or renal function. If they told you serum creatinine versus 24-hour creatinine clearance, which one of those would win as the best? The 24-hour creatinine clearance would be better than the serum creatinine, but the serum creatinine would be second best and beat everything else. So you got the 24-hour creatinine clearance, the best indicator of kidney function, serum creatinine number two, and everything else a distant, excuse me, a distant third. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you guys. Stop. I don't know why. In the, in the, I knew I was missing something at the very beginning of this, this whole review. Please feel free to record. Okay, so if you want to record what I'm saying, feel free. Just record away. Okay? So, um, Now, do you see this ear kidney thing here? I want you to have a visual of the number eight. You see how the number eight fits in a kidney real nicely? See how that shape fits? I want you to remember that the number eight, that's, that's number three there, the number eight drawn inside the ear reminds you of two things about these drugs. Number one, they are toxic to cranial nerve number eight, which is the ear nerve. And you administer them every eight hours. You don't give them Q6, Q4, Q2, continuous drip. You give them every what? Eight hours. All right, let's turn the page. What's the route? IM or IV? IM or IV is the route. You give these drugs IM or IV. Next point. Do not give these drugs PO because they are not absorbed. Do not give them PO. They are not absorbed. So if you give a oral mycin, what will happen? It'll go into your gut, dissolve, and do what? Go right through and you're making expensive stool. <laughs> because it's not going to be what? Absorbed. And if it's not absorbed, it will have no systemic effect. That's why it has to be given IV or I am not not because it's going to hurt you. It just isn't going to do anything. Now, except in two cases, there are two cases where we want to give these mean old mycins orally, 
And the first case is hepatic encephalopathy, called hepatic coma. Have you heard of liver coma or hepatic coma? I hope you've heard of it, at least heard of it a little bit. It's when your ammonia level gets too high. Do you remember that? The ammonia gets up there and it pickles your brain. And you go into a coma and you can die. Well, what is the treatment goal in hepatic coma? Reduce what blood level? The ammonia. The goal in hepatic coma or hepatic encephalopathy is to get the ammonia down. That's the goal. Well, oral mycins will do that. Because what will oral mycins do? Well, they will dissolve in your mouth, right, in your gut, and go through your gut and kill gram-negative bacteria in your gut. So it will sterilize your valve. Do you know what the number one producer of ammonia in your body is? The E. coli in your gut. And if I can kill the E. coli in your gut, what do I do to the ammonia level? I decrease it. And would that help here? Yes. yes. And because these people have liver damage, we don't want this drug to ever get to their what? Brain. Liver. Because it could hurt the liver. Will it ever get to their liver if taken orally? No. It'll go in one end, sterilize the bowel, and go out the other end. Do you see where this is a perfect drug for this? It's going to kill the E. coli, reduce the ammonia level, and it won't harm the damaged liver because it's not going to be absorbed. It's a designer drug. Plus, it makes you have diarrhea, which makes you get rid of stuff, too, which is double better. The other time they want you to give it is in pre-op bowel surgery. Why would you want to give an oral mycin? Why would you want to give an oral mycin before bowel surgery? Why? To sterilize the bowel. Clean it out. Better than enemas. So for a few days before bowel surgery, what might a patient take? An oral mean old mycin. Will we have any ototoxicity or nephrotoxicity with this? No. no. Why? It's not absorbed. Now, if it went IM or IV, we would have ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity, but because it's not absorbed, we won't. So in both cases, the hepatic encephalopathy and the preop valve what did the oral mycin do? It sterilized your bowel, did it not? So what is the number one action that an oral mycin will have? Sterilize, sterilize the, bowel. the bowel. So these oral mycins are called the bowel sterilizers. Now, there are any, any of these drugs would do it, but there are two of them that are used exclusively for bowel sterilization, and they are... Neomycin and canamycin. Neomycin and canamycin. So what do I want you to remember about neomycin and canamycin? That they're bowel <coughs> sterilizers, right? Because that's all they're going to be used for. They're taken orally for the purpose of sterilizing your bowel. So you have, whenever you see neo or can, what should you think of? Bowel sterilization. Now, how do I want you to remember that? I have this. Do you see where it says this? Do uh, you see it says, remember this military sound off? Do you see that? Do you remember, do you ever see or hear or experience uh, a military situation where the troops are marching down the road or jogging down the road and the drill sergeant says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
and the troops go, sound all three, four. You know what I'm talking about? Like a cadence. You got what I'm talking about here? Well, think of this military cadence. It's rather weird, but it'll work for you. The question that the drill sergeant asks, you see the cue there? The question the drill sergeant asks is, who can sterilize my bowel? Okay, who can sterilize my bowel? That's what the sergeant asks. Well, the troops are going to shout something back. In answer to that question, the A, the answer will be, Neo can. Because he said what? Who can? So they say, Neo can. Neo what? Mycin and can mycin. So neomycin and canamycin. So whenever you see neo or can, what should you think? Who can sterilize my bowel? You'll know they are bowel sterilizers and you'll know what you're talking about. Alright? Now, don't look at your book. Don't look at your book. I say aminoglycoside. You say? Okay, which tells you they treat what? Menal infections. Like what? Serious life-threatening, resistant, gram-negative things. They all end in? Except for the throats. Correct? When you see mycin, you think of what rodent? Which makes you think of? Which tells you they are? So you monitor their hearing, and dizziness. And the ear is shaped like the? So they are also? So you monitor their? Creatinine. And what number do you draw in the ear? Eight. So cranial nerve number eight is damaged, eight. and you give it every? Eight. What route? Do you give it PO? Why? Not so but if you give it PO, what will it do? Sterilize your um, What two situations do you want valve sterilization? Hepatic encephalopathy and bowel. Who can sterilize your bowel? Neomycin and canamycin. All right. So do you know those drugs? Yeah. Get it from mean old mice. Okay, so you can know the whole shoot match. There isn't a question they would ask you about these drugs that that does not cover. That covers it all. Okay. Um, I had a nurse from, I was touring Miami Valley Hospital about four or five years ago, and a nurse comes up to me in the hallway and says, who can sterilize my bowel? <laughs> and I said, excuse me? <laughs> and she says, who can sterilize my bowel? And I said, I and she says, answer the question. And so I said, Neo can? <laughs> and she said, yeah, I had, your ten, I had your class a year and a half ago. And I felt like I said, honey, you can delete this stuff. <laughs> you don't have to keep this stuff forever. But well, that was evidently it stuck with her. Maybe it'll stick with you guys. Hey, let's talk about trough and peaks and go, go on a break. Trough and peak levels there at the bottom of the page. Trough means when the drug's at its what? Lowest, and peak is when the drug's at its highest. I call them tap levels, because that tells you the order you do things in. What do you do first? T, draw your trough. A, administer your drug. P, draw your peak. So I, like, I teach students tap. Trough administers peak. 
So when is the peak drawn? After the administration. When is the trough drawn? Before the administration. TAP. T-A-P. Well, what's the reason for drawing TAP levels? What we call narrow therapeutic window. Have you heard that term, narrow therapeutic window? And that means there's a very small difference between what works and what kills. So if a drug has a very small difference between what works and what kills, what will we draw on them? Taps. If they have a wide range, will we draw taps on them? No. So let me ask you this. What's the smallest dose of Lasix you ever gave or saw given? Lasix, furosemide, the diuretic. I've seen 10, 5 or 10. What's the most you've ever seen? 80, 120. So it goes anywhere from 20, 10 to 120. Is that a narrow or a wide range? So would you draw troughs and peaks on Lasix? No. What about ditch? What's the lowest you've given of ditch? 0.125. What's the highest you give of ditch? 0.25. That's only 0.125 difference. That's pretty narrow. Would you do a peak and a trough on a ditch? Yeah. Yes. So these mean old mices all have what drawn on them? Yeah. Taps because they have what? Yeah. Narrow therapeutic windows. Now, I want you to understand amino old mycins are not the only class of drugs which have taps drawn but they are a major class in which you draw taps therefore that's why I'm talking about it here do you understand what I'm saying? this discussion of troughs and peaks could apply to a lot of other drugs besides these but it definitely applies to these so what boards will want to know is when you draw it when you draw the trough when you draw the peak good news you don't even have to know what the drug is because it depends on the route, which is great. This would be a fantastic question to get a drug you never heard of because it doesn't matter. The route matters. So if they say, when would you draw the peak on a patient getting L-asparaginase IV push? What does not matter at all? L-asparaginase, what matters? IV push. Okay, so let's talk about this. Troughs. We'll fill in the trough column first. When you draw a sublingual trough, a trough before when you draw the trough before you give a sublingual med, thirty minutes. Thirty. That's three zero. I'm not saying thirteen. Thirty. Three zero. Thirty minutes before the next dose. So if the med is being given at ten. Sublingually, when do you draw your trough? 9.30. 9.30. 30 minutes before that next dose. Let's talk about IV. We're going down the column. When do you draw a trough before an IV med? 30 minutes before the next dose. 30 minutes before the next dose. IM, when do you draw the trough? 30 minutes before the next dose. When you draw a sub-Q, 30 minutes before the next dose. And lo and behold, what do you think the answer is for a PO med? 30 minutes before the next dose. So how hard is a trough question? Not hard. Not hard, because it doesn't matter what drug, and it doesn't matter what route. It's always 
30, 30 minutes. minutes. So how many trough questions do you want on your licensing exam? Uh, 75. <laughs> <laughs> LPNs, you want 85. Because you're going to ace it. So don't sweat it. Great place. Other people are going to be sweating bullets and you're going to be laughing. Okay, the peak. Now, sorry to say the peak is going to change. It's not going to be like the trough. But here again, it won't depend on the drug. It will depend on the rat. Because I'm going to say something that is correct. Do not write this down, but this is true. The same drug given by two different routes at the same time will have two different peaks. I give PO morphine and IV push morphine at the same time. I'm going to have two peaks. One for, it's the same drug. However, two different drugs given at the same time by the same route will peak together. Morphine and phenergan, two different drugs given IV, same route, at the same time will peak together. So what determines the peak, the drug or the route? The route. So always pay attention to the route. So let's talk about it. When do you draw a sublingual peak? Five to ten minutes after the drug is dissolved. Five to ten minutes after the drug is dissolved. IV, 15 to 30 minutes after the drug is finished. Why did I say finished? Not when you what? Hang it. You don't start your clock when you hang it. You start your clock when it's finished. When the bag is empty. Then you go 15 to 30 minutes after that. What if they told you you were going to give... Sorry, let me explain one minute. Uh, you're going to give 100 mil of a drug at 200 mil per hour. You understand that? You're going to give 100 mil at 200 hours. So how long is that going to take to run in? 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Okay, you hang it at 10 a.m. So when's that going to finish? 10.30. 10.30. When would you draw the peak? Well, they'd say A, 10.15. B, 10.30. C, 10.45. Yes. D, 11 o'clock. Yes. They do this all the time. Two right answers. Right one's 15 after it's in, one's 30 after it's in. It's in the, isn't that the range? Yeah. Which one are you supposed to pick? Eleven. Whenever you get two in the same correct range, whenever you get two values in the range and they're both correct, play the price is right. Who wins on price is right? Highest without going over. So who's the highest here without going over? Eleven. And that's who wins all the time. For example, just to show you how this works in every case. Do you remember antidepressant meds? Antidepressant meds. How long does it take the typical antidepressant med to work? Two to four weeks. Two to four weeks. If boards told you that the client had been on it for one week already, got it? It's been on it for one week already, and they're saying, it didn't work and it didn't help and I feel horrible, what would you teach them? A, it may take another week to work. Is that true? Might it? Yes. yes, that's the two. 
it, and then B says it may take three more weeks to work. That's also true. So you got two right answers. One week and three weeks. Which one wins? Three weeks because you picked the <coughs> highest without going over. When would a child be able to be potty trained during the night? Three years or five years? Well, that's three to five years. Nighttime potty training for urine. So what would be your answer? Three years or five years? Five and you'd be right. Do you see what I'm saying? So always, whenever you're sitting there and you have two right answers, they both are correct numbers, pick the highest without going over. And that will always win. Okay, that's not just on this, but on everything. Okay, the IM. The IM is 30 to 60 minutes. You draw the IM peak 30 to 60 minutes after you give it. So if you were between 30 and 60, what would you pick? 60. See, they love to test this. You gave an IM Demerol for pain. When would you check them for relief? In 30 minutes or in an hour? Well, it's going to peak in 30 to 60. So it's either going to pick in 30 or 60. What would you say? 60. Yeah, because you want to give it enough time. You could check them in 30, but you should at least check them within an hour. Okay, um, sub Q. Here I want you to write the word S-E-E. C, S-E-E. C, diabetes lecture, which we'll talk about tomorrow. Because the only subcutaneous peaks they talk about are the insulins. And we'll just talk about it then, okay? They don't talk about terbutaline, sub Q, or anything like that. And then in the P.O. box, put forget about it because they don't test P.O. peaks. It's all too variable. All right, take it to come back at 7.20 and we'll finish up for the day.